morning. It is a real joy to be with you here this morning. I'm sure some of you are wondering um, how I came to be here. So just a little bit of a background. Uh, your pastor, uh, Peter Phillips, was a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church in downtown Louisville uh, before he came here, before you called him here to serve you. And uh, my wife and I, we also worshiped at Emmanuel Baptist Church in downtown Louisville. Uh, and as of January of this year, we moved out to Shelbyville, or kind of still in the process of moving out to Shelbyville. We live sometime, part of the time in Shelbyville and part of the time in Louisville. But we're moving there to be part of a church planting team from Emmanuel in downtown uh, Louisville uh, to be part of a church planting team in Shelbyville itself. And so starting in January, uh, we started uh, a commission, uh, commission Church of Shelbyville, Kentucky. So this morning, I bring you greetings from the Commission Church of Shelbyville, Kentucky. Okay. Uh, and so this uh, a couple of days ago, when Peter uh, Peter actually called Cameron, uh, who's a brother, was also part of that team there in Shelbyville, and said, "Hey, you know, my wife's recovering, so can you would you better come and preach?" And uh, he wasn't able to, so he called me and said, "Hey, Gary, would you better go to go to uh, uh, Smithfield Baptist Church?" And I'd be delighted to be, be delighted to do so. And so it was with great great joy they get to open the Word with you uh, this morning. But before we do so, um, let me just let's just go to the Word in prayer, and we'll pray for uh, Pastor Peter and his wife Clarissa. Uh, and I'd like to pray for you as a congregation as well. In fact, before I start that, when I talked with Peter uh, a couple days ago about, about the church here, I was really encouraged to hear what he had to say about you, um, that you're a church that loves the Lord um, and that you uh, are diligent in the faith. And so I'm really encouraged by that. And so I hope this morning as I bring the word to you from Psalm 1 that you'll find that uh, really encouraging uh, as a word from the Lord to just continue, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, he says, what you're doing, keep on doing more and more. And so this is, a, this is a word to just encourage you in what's already taking place here. Let's pray. Gracious and glorious Father, we come before you this morning. For where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have sent your Son that we might have eternal life. You have put your Spirit within us to accomplish that work of salvation. To conform us to the image of Christ, to, to give us the, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sons and daughters, uh, to work out this new life in us and this hope for the future. So Lord, we, we give you great praise and honor and glory this morning. I thank you that from the testimony of Pastor Peter, Lord, that this is work that's already taking place here in this town of Smithfield. Father, we, we pray especially this morning for Pastor Peter and his wife Clarissa. Lord, we just ask for your, the touch of your spirit upon her that you might grant her healing and, and a quick recovery from these uh, two, two surgeries that she's had. I pray for Peter uh, that, Lord, you might enable him to serve his wife well, to love her well, and to, to care for her and to nurture her as he seeks to bring her back to health. We pray that you might bring this couple back to this congregation quickly uh, in health and in, in, in refreshment uh, and renewal and ready to continue their, their ministry of serving here. Lord, I thank you, too, for this congregation. I pray that, as you have already done, you might continue to do, that you might open their eyes of their heart, that they might catch a glimpse, a greater glimpse of your glory that might be captured by your majesty and your dominion and your authority, uh, both the, the hope of the present and the hope of the future, that, Lord, this, this church might indeed be a light on a hill, that, Lord, having seen your glory, they might be able to share that glory with the town around them. Lord, we just pray this morning as we open your word that you might indeed open our eyes to behold the wonderful things in your law. I pray as I speak, it won't be through the, the wisdom uh, and the insight of, of study, but that your spirit might move me to, to speak only your words this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you think back with me for a moment to some time where you have glimpsed a glorious picture. Perhaps it was a sunset or a sunrise or 
a mountaintop or the Rockies or the Himalayas or the Alps, something that's absolutely stunning and beautiful, perhaps a Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls, I mean, something that you personally have seen. And when you glimpsed it, when you saw it, you're just going to go, oh, cool, and, and just turn around and go back to the car? No, you didn't, did you? You're, you're shaking your head. No, you didn't. Of course you didn't. It was something that was glorious, and you sat there trying to soak it in. The sounds, the smells, the hues, the colors. You try to soak in the wonder. And in all this majesty, or it might have been even the birth of a baby child, but in all this wonder, there's a sense of your own finitude, your, your, just your smallness, right? And you, you're trying to soak in the grandeur, the glory, the majesty, the beauty of what you're looking at. And as you go home in the, and in the weeks to come when you try to share that, you find that words fail to express what you experienced. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, well, that's what the psalmists are trying to do. There's 150 psalms, and that's what they're endeavoring to do. They have glimpsed the glory and the majesty and the dominion and the authority of the living God. And so they are imparting to us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're imparting to us what they have seen. They want us to join them in that understanding through God's word of the wonder of the works and the person of God and his anointed one. And, he, and having glimpsed that, that we continue to gaze into its depths. That we don't just go, oh, that was, that was a cool psalm. Thanks for reading Psalm 99, that's cool. And off we go. No, that we stop because we've caught this glimpse. And so we want to tear away anything that impedes our continued vision of the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of God as seen in Jesus Christ. Right? And so that's what the psalmists are trying to do. That's what they actually do do. Now, what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at Psalm 1. Um, and we look at Psalm 1, so let's go ahead and read that, and then, then we'll continue with a little bit of an introduction. So if you turn with me to Psalm chapter 1, and it's there on the screen um, for those of you who might need it. Psalm 1, blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the gateway to the rest of the Psalms. Together, they serve as the introduction. That's Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together serve as the introduction to the book of Psalms. And you'll note that because, um, actually first, I'm gonna make three observations here about how this Psalm 1 has, Psalm 1 serves as the introduction to the book of Psalms, but then it has a message in and of its own right. But first I want you to see how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together form the introduction to the book of Psalms. So as you read through the book of Psalms, you might be well equipped to, to continue reading and exploring the whole book of Psalms. And then we'll come back and we'll look specifically at Psalm 1 today. But first, three thoughts or three observations about how Psalm 1, and together with Psalm 2, introduce us to the, to the book. So the first thing I want you to know, in Psalm 1, verse 1, it says, you notice that these two psalms are framed or bookended by statements of blessing. Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now look at the end of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Those are bookends. The scholars call them inclusios because it includes everything in between, right? So you've got blessed is a man and blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, the psalmist is trying to say, 
you need to take into, you need to look at these two psalms together. Together, these two psalms have a message for us on how we are to proceed through this book. That's observation number one. Observation number two is that these psalms tell us how, what kind of heart attitude we should have as we approach the book. You'll notice that Psalm 1 is all about the law. It's about, look at, uh, you'll notice in verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so the psalmist is telling us that as we approach God's word, we need to do so with a fear for God's word, a respect for God's word, a sense of awe and wonder at God's word that submits ourselves to God's word. As we come to God's word, we need to submit ourselves under it, that as we submit ourselves under God's word, that it might take its effect. But it's not the word for the word's sake. It's the word for the Lord's sake. And we see that in Psalm 2. Because Psalm 2 opens with, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So that's, what, that's why we have these two as the introduction. Psalm 1 is saying, as you open the word, you need to do so with a fear for God's word, an expectation that you're going to encounter God. Because the word is not the word for the word's sake, it's the word to reveal the Lord and his anointed. So we need to come to the word with a fear for the word and a fear for the Lord and for his anointed. And that's the second observation. And the third observation then is that the, the Psalms um, basically open to us, introduce to us a theme that we're going to see throughout the book. Um, this is wisdom literature. The Psalms are wisdom literature. And what the psalmist is doing is here is he's telling us, introduce us to the theme that there is a way of righteousness and there is a way of wickedness. There is a lifestyle that characterizes the righteous, and there's a lifestyle that characterizes the wicked. And there is a blessing that comes to the righteous, and there's a judgment that comes to the wicked. Right? And so that's one of the themes, that, that's the, the theme that is being introduced to us um, here in the text. So that's how the Psalms serve as an introduction to the book of the book of Psalms. But it also has, like I said, it has a message in and of itself for us. That Psalm, the writer of Psalm 1, we believe it's David has something that he wants us to know and understand. And that's what we're looking at today. So as we get started there, let me just, let me just pray again um, as we embark on this journey. Father, we, we just thank you and praise you that, that you have called us uh, to your son, that you have, through repentance and faith in your son, you have declared us to be righteous. And Lord, we desire to live that way. We desire to walk and live in righteousness. And as we look at this psalm today, as we look at, at what David tells us about the way of righteousness, I pray that, Lord, you will open our hearts and our eyes to see, again, the beautiful things, the wonderful things that's in your law. Um, Lord, may we not just hear it, but may we, may we also act on uh, this word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so let's look again at Psalm 1. Um, what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through this, verse, this chapter, this psalm, uh, verse by verse. And there's a lot of content here, so we'll, as we walk through it, um, I will seek, to, will seek to define some words, um, and we will then make the applications as we walk through the text. So you'll notice in these six verses, the psalmist introduces, introduces us to the way of the wicked, their character and their end, the way of the righteous, their character and their end, and the sovereignty of God in accomplishing his purpose for both. So before we begin, let us define what is meant by wickedness and righteousness. Wickedness, you may think that, that wickedness is, is, or you may think that you're not a bad person, and that the term wicked is reserved for those specially evil and nasty people, like the Hitlers and the Pol Pots of this world, or um, the, the Amins, you know, they're, they're really bad people. But that's not how scripture defines wickedness. 
Scripture defines wickedness as anyone outside of Christ. Anyone, the Scripture says that that person is wicked who is outside of Christ. We're all born into sin. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we're all by nature children of wrath. We're children of wickedness. We're deserving of God's justice, of his judgment, and of his wrath. Wickedness, then, is any act of opposition or disobedience to God and his word, with the greatest act of wickedness being the rejection of God's way of salvation found in Christ. And so if you're here this morning, you may be a very moral, upstanding citizen, and we're, that's common grace, and we're grateful for that. But if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ as your Lord, God would say you're a wicked individual, that anyone is wicked who has not repented of the sin and trusted in God as salvation, in God, God's provision of Christ for salvation. Righteousness, then, is the state of being rightly related to God. That is, that God no longer counts our sin against us. To be made righteous is to be made right with God. And so it may appear that the psalmist is saying from this text, from a casual reading of the text, it may appear that the psalmist is saying that if you avoid wickedness and delight and meditate on the scriptures, then you'll be righteous. But that's not so. That's not what the psalmist is saying. It is essential to the understanding of the psalm that we understand that the psalmist is not instructing us how one becomes righteous. Rather, he is telling us how the righteous one lives. The psalms were written for worship. They're worship for they're written for worship within Israel, both private worship and corporate worship. So it was written to those who already believe and follow after Yahweh, the living God. It's written to those ones who are righteous. And so the psalm is written that we might know how one is to walk righteously. So this raises the question, how then does one become righteous? If this is written to the righteous, let's make sure that we fit that category, that, that God has indeed declared us to be righteous. Well, Romans 3, uh, in fact, it's important to understand that both the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint are made righteous in the same way. It's not like we're saved in different ways. We're both declared righteous in the same way, which is why Abraham is given as our example in Romans. In Romans 4.3, Paul tells us, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God made promises to Abraham. Abraham believed God's promises, and God declared him righteous on the basis of that faith. The same is true for us. God has made promises to us. He's promised that if you repent of your sin and trust in my provision of Christ as, a, as your substitutionary sacrifice and his death on the cross, if you trust in his death on the cross and his resurrection, you'll be saved. And so by believing that what God said to be, have any of you here seen, were any of you here and saw the death and his resurrection? Anyone see that? I, I didn't see it. But we've been told that it's true. And faith is believing God to do what he said he would do. He promised that if I trusted in his son's death on the cross, that he would forgive me for my sin, grant me adoption as a son, and bring me to life eternal. And I believe that to be true. I've repented my sin, turned from my sin, turned to Christ, and I believe what he said to be true to be true, and God says, you're righteous. Just like Abraham believed what God said to be true was true. Ephesians 2.8, Paul again says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is a free and gracious gift of God that comes by faith. So if you've repented this morning, if this morning you sit here as one who has repented of your sin and turned to Christ, then God has declared you to be righteous. Praise God. There's joy. We can, we, God has declared us righteous. And so then, this blessedness which is spoken of in Psalm 1 is for you. But if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, and the first action today is actually to do that. And then this blessedness can be for you. So now let's discover that we've defined the terms, and that's what we'll be doing. We'll define terms, and then we'll move through the text. So let's discover how this blessedness 
what blessedness comes from walking the way of righteousness. So the, the, the psalm opens with the word blessed. It's a pronouncement of blessing. Now, what incredible expectation and hope there is in that pronouncement. I mean, isn't that a wonderful thing for, for God to say, blessed, you're blessed. I mean, don't we all want to be among those who are counted as being blessed by God? I mean, who here does not want to be blessed by God? All right, no hands. Exactly. Who here wants to be blessed by God? And we have been in Christ. But, but so what does blessed mean here? Now, wisdom literature commonly uses the term blessed to refer to the one who is fortunate or privileged. You're, you're, you're fortunate because God smiles upon you. You're fortunate because God has made you fortunate. You're privileged to be one who's known by God. It is used to refer to someone who's fortunate, one who's privileged, one who is favored by God. The word blessed here is also plural. It's not singular, it's plural. There's a multiplicity, a multiplicity of blessings. There is an abundant number of blessings that God has prepared for the one who walks in righteousness, the one who belongs to him. It's not just a singular blessing, but, but, but plural. In fact, this word blessed here, it brings to mind the Sermon on the Mount and the blessedness that's proclaimed by Christ. Here it's a single one word, but blessed meaning plural. And in the Sermon on the Mount, nine times Jesus says, blessed are the ones. Blessed, blessed, blessed. So there's this multiple blessing that God has prepared for the one who walks in righteousness. Notice too, as well here, that uh, there are two characteristics of the one who's declared as blessed. Um, both one, verse one and verse two, speak of the characteristics of the one who is blessed. He is described negatively in verse one, and positively in verse 2. So in verse 1 it says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. He is characterized by what he does not do. Notice in verse 2, he is described positively. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is characterized by what he does. Now have you seen that somewhere before? How about in Paul? Right? What does Paul say? He says, put off the works of darkness, and put on the works of light. Put off the old man and put on the new man. So is it sufficient in Pauline theology to put off the old man and put off darkness? It's not, is it? Right, Because repentance is actually a turning away from. It's a putting off the old man, putting off darkness, and putting on light and putting on the new man. Right, That the Christian life is composed both of putting off the old and putting on the new. In the terms of the psalmist, it's avoiding or not walking the counsel of the wicked or the way of sinners, but delight in the law of the Lord. Speaking of this man, Spurgeon says, his footsteps are ordered by the word of God and not by the cunning and wicked devices of carnal men. It is a sign of inward grace when the outward walk is changed and when ungodliness is put far from our actions. It is a sign of inward grace when the outward walk is changed and when ungodliness is put far from our actions. So let me ask you a few questions this morning by means of application. Are you a believer? What then characterizes your life? Is your life simply is your is your life characterized simply by the avoidance of sin, by the things that you don't do? Or is it characterized by both the avoidance of sin, the putting off of sin, and a sincere love of God and a delight in his word? The psalmist is instructing us here that the blessing spoken of here is not for the one. Let me say it again. The, the blessing spoken of here is not for the one whose life is characterized only by what they don't do. That is, the sin they avoid. But the blessing is for one who avoids sin and delights and meditates on God's word. I'm reading a book right now with um, another man in our church in, at, uh, in Shelbyville uh, at Commission. 
and it's called Deep Discipleship and uh, by J.T. English. Um, it, it's, it's a really great book, I mean, and really, I mean, he has a lot of things, look, great observations. One of the things he says that is really sad, he says that a lot of churches, he's talking about evangelical churches, a lot of churches, the, the congregations and the, and the members of the churches are characterized by a love for the church and a love for teaching and a love for ministry, but are bored with Christ. Now, how sad is that? To love the teaching, to love the worship. Thank you, brother, this morning for the worship you led. It was encouraging. But to love the teaching, to love the community of saints, to love the ministries, but they're actually bored with the person of Christ. Now, think how incongruent that is with what we just read in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. It's a love of the word. Why? For Christ's sake. Because in the word, God is revealed to us. It's in the word that the person, the work of Christ is revealed. What a tragedy that we should love all these things and, and not love the one to whom it is pointing us. So our lives need to be characterized by not only the avoidance of sin, but by a pursuit and a delight in the things of God. Let's look at each of these characteristics um, in turn. So I want you to notice here that it says, Blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. I want you to notice here the progression of sin. Do you notice that? Walk, stand, sit. Well, let's give that a try, right? So I'm walking. I stand. And I sit. Right? There's a progress progressive immobility, a progressive stagnation. I mean, that's really insightful. That's exactly what sin does, doesn't it? A person who finds himself walking in the presence of sin will soon find themselves standing in the presence of sin, then sitting in the presence of sin. There's this progressive stagnation. Um, I remember as a kid, you know, when, you're, when, you're, when your competitiveness was higher, you know, I, I have a twin brother. So we're, we're heading down to the beach, right? And we get out of the car, we're kind of like just kind of casual. And then when he's not looking, I start running, right? Because I want to be first in the water. Now you're running, I mean, you're running down the sidewalk. How, how fast are you moving? pretty fast, right? Now I hit the sand. How fast am I moving? A little slower. And then I hit the water. What happens? My legs come out. Exactly. My legs come out from underneath me and I just fall in, right? So that's what sin does, right? It, it's like this mire that, that gets a hold of you and eventually you get caught up in. So brothers and sisters, today, here's, here's a challenge. You know, stop and ask the question, is there any way that I'm kind of flirting with sin? That's the walking. Am I walking in the presence of sin that eventually I might kind of stand there and eventually might sit there? And we can actually unlock some of those, those terms, but I think we need to, to move on. But I just think of the psalmist who says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Psalm 139. Try me and know my thoughts. See if, there's any, see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So the first point of application here is, is this week as you go home. Just ask the Lord. Say, Lord, is there some way in my life that I am beginning to walk and realize it? Sin's insidious. It's deceptive. So ask the Lord, Lord, reveal to me, show me, is there areas where I'm flirting with sin? Or have I already gone past the walking I'm standing? Or perhaps past that I'm sitting in it? Look at the second characteristic of the one who's blessed. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is a man who delights in the law and meditates on the law. So, what does he mean by that when he, when he says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night? So let's just unpack that word law there. Is he referring to the Old Testament, the, the, the law, the first five books of the Bible? Or is he referring to the Bible in its, entire, um, in, its, in its entirety? 
The answer is yes. <laughs> All right? but, but let's unpack that just a little bit. Keep in mind that the Psalms, 150 Psalms, divide into five books. Why divide into five books? Because it's imitating a mirror of the law. In other words, the Psalms are claiming the same inspired authority as Mosaic law has, of which no one would ever question. Right? But keep in mind, too, that David wrote almost half the Psalms. So at the time that David was writing the Psalms, he had no Psalms to meditate on because he's the one writing them. Right? <laughs> okay? So what was he looking at? What gave David the inspiration for the Psalms? I don't know, perhaps he was meditating on the law day and night. The, the, the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. In fact, you'll notice that. You'll notice this correlation between Psalm 1 and Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these commands I give you today shall be on your heart. You will teach them to your children as you rise up, as you lay down, as you go out, as you come in. Again, it's in, in Deuteronomy 8, and again in Deuteronomy 9, and again in Deuteronomy 10. And again, it unpacked for us in 29 and 30. In fact, all of Deuteronomy is about a love for the word of God because it reveals God. In fact, we're told in Deuteronomy that the king is, is so cool. God says, you're not supposed to have kings because I am your king. But when you rebel against me and choose to have a king, <laughs> right, which they did, that king must write for himself a copy of the law in its entirety. And I think David probably did that because if we look at the fact that he wrote 70, more than 70 psalms, and if you look at the content of his psalms, he's looking back there. Think about it. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and affirm his handiwork. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they declare knowledge. There is no speech nor language for their voice is not heard. Where do they get that? Psalm 1 and 2. I will sing of the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. Thrown into the sea. Where did he get that? Where did he get that? The horse and rider thrown into the sea. What book? Exodus. Psalm 99. You just read it this morning. Where did he get that? Speaks of Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, right? And Mount the Mount of God. So he got it from Exodus, and he got it throughout the Torah, and of course, 1 Samuel. And it's helpful then, it's helpful when you're reading through the Psalms to stop and think what was the psalmist looking at when he wrote, when he was inspired to write the Psalms. So the Psalms, in essence, are a poetic commentary on the law. Okay, get that? They're a poetic commentary on the law. As the psalmist is caught up with what he sees in the person and work of God is revealed in the law, he is inspired to write this psalm, which is a response of worship. It's a, the psalms are, are worshipful, a worshipful poetic commentary in response to the law. Okay? Um, but more than that, right, when he says meditate on the law, he's not just telling us meditate on Genesis through Deuteronomy. Because the word law is translated from the Hebrew word Torah, which means instruction. So broadly, so, so finally speaking, he's probably talking about the Torah, the law, as we know it. But broadly speaking, he's, he's talking about the all, all of the revealed counsel and instruction of God, which is Genesis through Revelation, the entire entirety of divine inspired scripture. Amen? So we are to take what he's telling us here, we have to take this approach to all of our study of scripture. And if we do so, if we avoid sin, and if we do this pursuit of God's word, then we'll find ourselves to be blessed. So that's the law. What does it mean then to delight in the law? Well, to delight in the law is to find joy, satisfaction, pleasure in the law. Psalm 19, uh, David says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I mean, David was, keep in mind again, he didn't have the Gospels. He didn't have those great Pauline epistles. He's looking at Genesis through Deuteronomy and says they're, they're sweeter than honey, more to be desired than gold. 
and he found great delight in just a little bit of revealed scripture that he had. Jesus emphasized this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they'll be thir- they will be filled. That's Matthew 5. To hunger and thirst after righteousness is to hunger and thirst after the word, because it's through the word that we learn of Christ and his righteousness. So, what is it that you desire most? What, de- what delights you? This morning, this last week, as you reflect on this last week, just think back to this last week. What was it that gave you delight? If we're honest, I think we'll admit that too often we have a diminished view of the value of God's word and an exaggerated value of other things. We have misplaced affections. That we have too great a desire for things that, that do not give life. Things that, that just occupy time. It's easy for our hearts to grow cold towards God's word. And as J.T. English says in Deep Discipleship, that we have a great love for the church and the community and the teaching, and yet our lives are strangely cold to the word and the one that it reveals. If this is you this morning, I'm not here to, to, to preach and bring condemnation. If that's you and it's been me in the past at times, repent. Say, Lord, forgive me. Father, forgive me because I have not delighted in your word as I should. I have not sought your face as I should. Forgive me. And, and ask him, Lord, reveal to me. Reveal to me where my affections are. If I have misplaced affections, re- restore my affections to where they should be. Give me a delight for your word. This, in Psalm 119, David says, um, I will run to your law when you expand my heart. So there's a great one. Pray, Lord, expand my heart that I might run towards your law. He also says in Psalm 119, and I prayed it this morning, he said, um, I'm going to answer a blank. I'll have to come back to that. Okay. Um, but then the second thing is we need to obey. Right? If you find that you don't have a delight in your God's word, then first repent, and then secondly, obey. Right? If you, want, if you wait for delight to come to you, if you wait for delight in God's word to come to you, then you'll never read it. You'll never open it. So read the word and pray for God to give you a, trans, a change of priority. In fact, there's this unique, there's this really kind of obvious correlation between pursuit and desire. You, pers- you pursue what you desire, and you desire what you pursue. The more you pursue something, the more you desire it. The more you desire it, the more you pursue it. And so you have this circle that's either getting, leading you to glory or, or leading you away from the Lord, right? And if you find that you don't have a desire for God's word, it's probably, it's not just a matter of, oh, I need a desire for God's word. You have a desire for something. We all have desires for something. And so to, what we need to do then is we need to put off, as Paul says, right? Put off the things, because put off the things that we are desiring that, that, are, that are, are unhealthy. Or it, and it's not always unhealthy. There are good things that God gives us, right? There, there are good things that God gives us. You know, he may give you a garden. You love the garden. That's a good thing. We're supposed to take dominion of the earth. But it becomes a bad thing when the good things that God gives us themselves become idols, right? And so it, if something, if there's a case of misplaced affection, then we need to put that off, right? Because if I continue to pursue that, I'll continue to desire that. So I got to put off the things that I'm desiring wrongly and pursuing wrongly and turn around and start pursuing the things that God says I should pursue. And as I pursue it, I'll find my desire increasing for it. And as my desire increases, I'll pursue it more. Does it make sense? Right. And, and ask that God, if you say to God, God, I need a brand new F-350, right? Good chance you're not going to get it. But if you say to God, God, I want to desire your word and I want to see your glory. Is he, nah, nah, that's not for you. No. Right, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you ask God to show him your glory, he will show you his glory. That's why he made you, that he might display his glory to you. Okay, so... 
what do we delight in? We need to, to, so again this week, I challenge you to think through carefully what is it that you find yourself delighting in. And here's a challenge for you in that. Philip Henry, the father of famous evangelical pastor and scholar Matthew Henry, um, said this to his son. In Matthew Henry's account on the life and death of his father, Philip Henry, he passes on to us some counsel that his father gave him concerning Psalm 119. Now keep in mind, bear in mind, that Psalm 119 has 176 verses. Of those verses, only four, every, all of them except for four, make reference to the Word of God in some way. You get it? So 172 makes some sort of reference to the Word of God. So Psalm 119 really is, in some ways, a commentary on Deuteronomy. I mean, it's all about God's Word and, and what God's Word does for us and, and in us. And Philip Henry said this to his son, or Matthew Henry records this, once, pressing the study of the Scriptures, he advised us to take a verse of the psalm every morning to meditate upon. And so, go over the psalm twice in the year. Think about it. 176 verses, you double that, 352. You can do it twice in one year if you did one verse every day. And that, says he, will bring you to be in love with all the rest of the scriptures. He often said, all grace grows as love to the word of God grows. All grace grows as love to the word of God grows. So I was like, huh, that's interesting. I'm going to give that a shot and see what happens. So I started, I, I got a journal. And, I, and, and on day one, this isn't it, um, but I just got a journal, you know, and I just wrote down day one, verse one. I, I wrote it out, verse one, right? And I wrote it out, and, my, and each time I asked two questions when I read it out. Is this true of me? For instance, thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. You know, okay, Lord, that's partially true, but there's a lot of ways that I do sin against you. This is not entirely true of me. And, and actually, I haven't hidden your word in my heart. I haven't memorized and hidden it in my heart as I should. So, Lord, forgive me. So I would start off first of going, Lord, forgive me for the, point, for the fact that this verse is not true of me. Then I'd ask that it be true of me. Then I'd ask that the verse be true of my wife and my children, of my pastor and of the church. And by the time I got, I think, verse 35 or verse 40, it was a month and a half into it, Jessica saw a difference in me, in my love for God's word, in my faithfulness in God's word, so much so that she started doing it. And about a month and a half into it, I saw a difference in her. And, and I've had, a, I mean, it has changed the way I view God's word. It's given me a love for God's word like I never had before. And so I challenge you to think about it, do that. It's just one verse a day. And actually, it's harder than you think. Because I have preached this sermon several times. I preached it in Dubai. We came here. We moved to Kentucky from the Middle East where we served for 10 years. So, but I've preached it there. And I've had people come, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. And besides Jess, only one other person has actually gone all the way through. So, so but, but I challenge you to do that. I mean, it's not my challenge. Philip Henry said it to Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry did it. And look at the copious volumes of brilliant, God-glorifying theology that has served the church for over a century. I mean, it, it, Matthew Henry has been a huge help to pastors and, and lay people like ourselves. So, just challenge you with that. So now let's consider for a few moments what it means to meditate. I have seven questions to, sim to simulate our thinking here. First, what is meditation? I don't know if you guys do this, but I'll do it. It's, you know, throw, tell me, just throw out a word. What is meditation? Meditation, what does it mean to you? Peace, okay. To meditate means to do what? Think, what else? Relax, okay. Wonder, okay. All right, here, here's a few words. Uh, synonyms of meditation. To contemplate, to consider, to ponder, to dwell on, to think about, to reflect. And Joshi, my favorite? Ruminate. Okay. How many of you guys hunt deer here? 
a couple, okay. So a deer ruminates, what is a ruminator? A ruminator is an animal that chews the cud, right? In fact, the first time I ever saw it, I was at a, at a, a petting zoo in Chicago with my son Corbin, and I'm sitting there watching a the deer, and he was sitting on a bunch of sand under a tree. There's no grass anywhere in sight, no grain, no nothing, and he's chewing. I'm like, oh, okay, he must have grabbed some hay over there, went over there and chewed. Then he's chewing, and then I see him swallow. I'm like, okay, he's done. And then he starts chewing again. I'm like, wait a second. You know, did someone give him some gum? What's going on here? So I watch him, and he's chewing, and he swallows, and then he kind of hiccups, and it, it goes down when he swallows, and when he hiccups, it comes back and he chews again. I'm like, wow, he's ruminating. Right? And that is a brilliant word for meditation. Because in rumen, what we're doing in meditation, right, is that we're bringing back, what we're doing right now is not meditation. This is teaching. Now, if you go home and you think about it, that's meditation. You're bringing back to mind things that have been studied and thought and, and read beforehand. Right? To, in order to meditate, you have to do the hard work of, of, of being disciplined to be in the word and have something to bring to mind. Right? If that's what you have to do. So uh, meditation is to, is to ruminate, to think about. Do all people meditate? Every, every person does meditate. We all meditate. We all think about something. Right? I see my son, after a Star Wars movie, running around the house with a stick going, right? And there he is, some Jedi warrior taking, you know, saving the universe. Right? What's he meditating on? Star Wars. Right? On a Monday morning, you, people come around the water, water box or whatever, they're, they're meditating on the football game. Right? They're, we, we talk about the things that we cherish. We all meditate. But the question is, are we meditating on things that are, are good for our soul that, that, that will, will cause us to be the one who is blessed by God? Does all meditation bring blessing? No. The psalmist is instructing us that meditation should have an object, and that object is God as he's revealed to us through his word. How frequently should we meditate? He says day and night. Is it realistic? Actually, I think it is, and we'll come back to that. Why do we meditate? The purpose of meditating is that we might encounter God, that we might know him. We can only know God through his anointed one. That's Psalm 2. Meditating on the scriptures is a means by which we grow in our love for God. I've already quoted Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. You will love the Lord your God. Well, how do you love your Lord your God? These commands I give you today will be on your heart. We grow in our love for God through being in his word and by meditating on his word. The means of loving God is through the meditation of his word. God uses his word to cause us to grow in our love for him. To cut out ourselves, from, cut ourselves off from the word is to cut ourselves off from the means of grace by which our love should grow. Remember, Philip Henry said that. All grace grows as a love for God's word grows. When God tells us to meditate on his word, it's not to place on us a burdensome obligation or to pile up condemnation when we fail, but rather God's word is a source of life and light is a means of grace. It's God's abundant goodness to us through which we might see him and be transformed by him. So the psalmist says we should meditate day and night. And why is he doing that? Well, because he himself has been meditating on the law. And as he meditates on the law, he has seen the benefits of meditating on the law. And that those benefits are, um, if, you look, if we look at, I'll jump over to Psalm 19, what are the benefits of this meditating? The benefit of meditating is Psalm 19 describes it this way. It revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eye, it warns the servant, it brings great reward. Psalm 119 enlarged our understanding of the benefits of meditating God's word. Here's the results from Psalm 119, just a few. It makes our way blameless. It makes us steadfast. It keeps us from wrong, from shame, from sin, from falsehood, from selfishness, from reproach. It keeps us pure, provides counsel, good judgment, knowledge, understanding, guidance, endurance, perseverance. It strengthens us, comforts us, sets our affections on God. It gives light, hope, joy, confidence, enables us to walk securely without fear. 
And, and the list goes on. This is what happens when we study when we study God's word. This is what the result of meditating on God's word is. Jesus actually enlarges on that himself. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said to the Father, remember he's praying to the Father about his disciples. He prays first about the disciples, then he prays about us. <coughs> Pardon me. And in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says this, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So in his high priestly prayer, praying for the disciples and for those who come to faith through them, that's us, he says, sanctify them by the truth. <coughs> your word is truth. In other words, he's saying to the Father, sanctify them by your word. The Spirit of God uses the word of God to the work of God. It's to our detriment if we cut ourselves off from that. So that's meditation. But notice the result of meditation. Notice that it says here, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. So, we've talked about the characteristics. This is a man who walks, avoids sin and delights in God's word. We've talked about meditation and now we're looking at the results as we see in this psalm. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Notice that the blessing here is fruit in season. And notice that he is planted by streams of water. So this is a tree. Think about a tree that's not just planted by one stream, but multiple streams, planted by streams of water. That means there's copious amounts of water, so much so that even when the rest of the land is in a drought, he's, this tree is fine. It can endure droughts. It can endure difficulties because it's planted. It's been set there by God. But notice that it's bearing fruit in season. So what does that mean? Well, that means is that that in whatever season you're in in life, as you walk with God, as you avoid sin, and as you seek to walk with God and through meditating on his word and being in his word, you will bear fruit in season. In a season of adversity, you'll develop, you'll have the fruit of patience and perseverance. In the season, so in the season of your adversity, you'll have patience and perseverance. In the season, in, in, in the season of your adversity, I will have Compassion and empathy. So think right now about your pastor and his wife. Right now they're in a season of adversity with her illness. So what God will do right now in their lives is produce patience and perseverance, and in your lives, compassion and empathy towards them. In a season of persecution, the, the fruit of endurance. In a season of doubt, faith. In a season of despair, joy. In a season of my having wronged others, humility and repentance on my part. And in a season of my having wronged you, forgiveness on your part towards me. In the season of need, trust and dependence. Well, let's put it this way. In the season of your need, trust and dependence. And in me, in the season of your need, generosity. You see how the Lord works in the church? That in the one there is need, and the fruit that's produced is trust, and in the other need, in another person there's abundance, and in that person's need, God produces generosity in this individual to meet the needs of that individual. If that person is suffering, endurance, and this person, empathy. In the season of temptations, if you're tempted with pride, the fruit of humility. If you're tempted to lie and deceive, perhaps at work to get a promotion, the fruit of truth. When tempted to gossip, restraint. And tempt, when tempted with anger, self-control. When tempted with lust, purity. I'm sure that each one of us here, brothers and sisters, can think of other seasons that they have faced or are facing. But whatever you face, the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to produce the work of God in you. Whatever is necessary to overcome the world, your flesh, the enemy, 
conforming you, sometimes through pain, sometimes through joy, and sometimes through others' pains, into the image of Christ. While abundant fruit is the expectation, remember it's a plurality, blessedness is plural here, while abundant fruit is the expectation and hope of the righteous, it is not so for the wicked. Look at that. It says the wicked are not so. So everything that I have said this morning about the righteous, it is not so for the wicked. It is otherwise for the wicked. They're, the chaff are just blown by the wind. There are unstable husks that are removed at the threshing. And notice this, how this is contrasted with the righteous who are trees that are planted. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. The wicked will not stand at all. This most, like, most likely alludes to the final judgment where the righteous are gathered together as a congregation of people under God's reign. As the righteous are gathered together on one hand, the wicked are gathered, and, but they will not stand there. They cannot stand. They will perish. Proverbs 14 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end, but its end is the way to death. So the psalmist closes here with words of hope and encouragement. He says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He is intimately acquainted with the way of the righteous. This is a true source of blessedness. This is a true source because God himself is watching over the way of the righteous to ensure that his purpose is accomplished because God made the way of the righteous. He's watching over his word to perform it. He's ensuring that his word will bring about the work that he intends. The righteousness is by grace. God's word upon which we meditate is a means of grace. Fruit is produced by grace. God is intimately acquainted with this way because it's his way. He decreed it. He planned it long ago. He sent his son to accomplish it. He's the one who brings us to salvation. He sustains us in it. Christ walked this way himself. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now I'll close with these two thoughts. The Puritan preacher John Owen said this. It's kind of old English, so I have to interpret, I mean, translate a few words, I guess, maybe. But Puritan preacher John Owen says this. Put this venture, sorry, put this to the venture, which means test. Put this to the test. Exercise your thoughts. That's meditation, right? But he says exercise your thoughts, which means a purposeful intention, proactive. I mean, if you, when you exercise, right, I mean, it's, you're either running, you're doing something with purpose that's strenuous. And he's saying, exercise your thoughts. In other words, be intentional and proactive in your meditation. So, put this to the venture. Exercise your thoughts, exercise your thoughts upon this very thing. The eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father. And see if your hearts be not wrought upon to delight in him. Now, you may, we all know what raw iron is, right? Raw iron is this pure iron that under intense heat and pressure is twisted into the shape that the, the artist or the, the welder or whatever wants to do. I mean, he, he, the iron is put under intense heat and pressure and it's twisted, right? And so, you know, our hearts can be hearts of stone. But what he's saying is this. If you put, put this to the test, exercise your thoughts upon the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father towards you as through Christ as revealed in the Word, and you will find that your heart no matter how hard it is, no matter how, where your affections lie, that your heart will be wrought upon to delight in him. God will do it. And I'll close with this benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Let me pray. Father, we just, again, Lord, we just, we just thank you so much for your word.
Lord, your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Lord, your, um, as this, when all, when, when Jesus was teaching about his eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and the crowds left him. Lord, you, the disciples stayed. You asked them, aren't you going to leave also? And they said, who else has the words of eternal life? Truly, Lord, these are the words of eternal life. Lord, these are the words through which you have revealed uh, yourself to us, your son to us. Uh, and so, Father, I just pray, Lord, that you might cause all of us to, to um, remove from us those vain affections that keep us from your word. May we become those who meditate in your word and reflect on it and share it with others. Lord, we just pray. I pray, Father, for this congregation that, that Lord, indeed, they will be like a tree planted by streams of water here in this town. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.